0: Hello, and welcome to the William & Mary Environmental Law and Policy Reviews 2021 Symposium Podcast, Sustainability in the City. This episode contains a 40-minute excerpt from our Legoland panel featuring a discussion on how communities can use urban dead zones as opportunities to promote sustainability and environmental justice. Our distinguished panelists for this episode are Professor Tony Arnold, Director of the Resilience Justice Project at the University of Louisville, Professor Julia Mahoney, a Professor of Law at the University of Virginia, and Dr. Leneal Henderson, a Professor of Government at William & Mary. The moderator for this discussion is Environmental Law and Policy Review staff member Byron Frizzell. We hope you enjoy the episode.
1: And so I think we have those opportunities. I saw, I saw this in San Antonio. I mean, even before or after the discussion about the Alamo, the creation of Riverwalk was not just something that the city decided. It was something that some grassroots people got involved in. I really liked the the, the case study in the Arnold presentation on Pine Ridge because doing a lot of work now with Navajo uh, Nation. Uh, the first thing that they will tell you that they come at anything with is their cultural friend? So I think as we go forward uh, in our discussions about uh, environmental justice and injustice, we're really talking power here. And I'm I'm, I'm reminded of John DeVent's book, uh, Power and the Powerless, where he says that uh, uh, nothing's ever going to be equal in terms of power, but it can be balanced. And that's, that's what we're really talking about. When we're dealing with environmental justice. Even when we use the term restorative justice, we use terms like reparation, we're trying to uh, tip the scales in a different direction. The other thing that I think is important about uh, the comments we just heard is they underscore how important it is for entire community and social systems to be involved. Because when it's all said and done, uh, as Martin Luther King would always say, you know, just injustice anywhere, is, uh, you know, an injustice everywhere. And so we all are affected. I mean, I had my students this morning at Virginia State. <laughs> I kind of put them in shock a little bit. I said, look, let's look up the state budget in Virginia. And let's, let's look at the five I, five largest items of expenditure. And wouldn't you know it, uh, they all have to do with somebody downtrod, Medicaid, corrections, you know, things like that, you know. Uh, so we all pay for this injustice. I mean, we really do. So you want to you want to keep uh, paying for it? Uh, as I say, whoever you leave out, you pay for. It. You pay for them now, pay for them later, but you're going to pay for them. And the people who are left out, of course, have been paying all along. Last comment. Um, I think it's important to point out. I'm just coming back, uh, Tony, to something you said. We have to understand that these vulnerable communities are in different states, right? I would say that uh, in Hampton Roads, where I'm pretty close to between Hampton Roads and Richmond, the communities that are in worse condition are already in an emergency management posture. Uh, Even before COVID, even before fires, even before tornadoes or typhoons or hurricanes, they were already in emergency conditions. Uh, I'm from New Orleans originally. And uh, long before Camille or Katrina or any of the, a lot of those neighborhoods, especially Ward 9, but also parts of Ward 7, were already in disaster conditions. So how do we do environmental justice, green focus uh, in a disaster laden community? It's the same question we raise overseas when we're dealing with the least developed country. Well, least developed country. What do you do with the community already in disaster? So the steps forward, the strategy forward, have to take into account the different levels of vulnerability and
2: how they connect to the overall condition of the community. Thank you, Dr. Henderson, um, Professor Arnold. Dispersing power, um, getting systems involved. What would what would how would you how would you answer to that, and and how would you uh, talk about solutions to taking into communities account, and and in that way.
3: Uh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, there's 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 so much that could be said. I mean, there's and and, and, and I think as as both Dr. Henderson and Professor Mahoney have pointed out, uh, this is going to take a lot of different strategies, and I I totally agree with that. I, I I'm I'm tend to be a fan of a toolbox approach. That there's no one model, one size fits all. And so, even though I've lumped. Uh, you know kind of what our proposal for for co-governance as a direction that's a big broad category and you can see uh, is, if you get into the, the the details that there's a lot of different ways that can be done and so I, I totally agree with all of that I, I would I would say that there's um, you know the there, there, there may be um, uh, maybe three things that I'll just sort of briefly hit on uh, here um, I, I think that you um, you know, engaging with sort of the culture and the cultural assets and, and identity of uh, existing neighborhoods and also engaging with the variable uh, vulnerabilities of neighborhoods there. I, I, I totally agree. They're not all in the exact same uh, condition. Uh, they not at all have the same capacities and vulnerabilities, the same strengths and weaknesses, uh, you know, resources and inequalities uh, they, that they, they do vary. And so I think, you know, this idea that we're going to to engage in uh, policymaking, planning and implementation uh, at a community based scale um, is about um, uh, you know, not only the voices from the community, but also sort of connecting the building of social capital uh, within the community to its existing assets and resources and identity and culture. So I think that's that's important. Um, and um, you know, and, and um, you know, and I think I mean I lived in San Antonio and practiced law in San Antonio for for a few years. And um, and of course, the Riverwalk is a great example. But also, um, interestingly uh, enough, a great success on uh, the the near west side, which is primarily sort of Latino barrios, is the El Mercado, the marketplace. Um, and that was another, uh, that's something that's very uh, community-based and community-driven. Uh, and uh, so I think that's... Um, that's important. Um, I think another thing that's a- important is um, to to think about planning. So I'm going to come back to the planning question. Um, and we do see examples of environmental justice being incorporated into comprehensive plans and neighborhood plans. Not very often to to. F- too few and far between, uh, but you know, over the years, um, um, you know, I, I've studied a, a number of examples of that. There's been East Austin in Texas, uh, the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization in Chicago, um, but interestingly enough, um, uh, within the last few years, the state of California has required um, a environmental justice component. Of all comp- local comprehensive plans, and so uh, there's a great uh, toolbox uh, kind of uh, uh, implementation guide uh, that the um, California Environmental Justice Alliance put together, um, and it's really interesting. And there's a lot of good case studies there, um, and so I think we're starting to see more of that happening. But you know, our our Um, you know, kind of assessments, how we, the examples we've looked at nationwide is that there's great variation and there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of communities that are not doing a very good job of that. Here in Louisville, we currently have a racial equity reform project that is coming from the Louisville metro government, but a lot of, you know, kind of community engaged uh, processes uh, that is meant to uh, have a, a relatively comprehensive reform of the, the Louisville Metro Land Development Code, which are, is our zoning and planning code um, that focuses on racial equity. It's probably going to be done in pieces because of the pandemic. It's hard to do all of it. So I've been uh, t- uh, working with them and, and there's you know, the starting point is sort of barriers to uh, fair and affordable housing. And, and But then eventually we're going to go in the direction of environmental justice. And so it's going to be kind of phase in. so there, there are things that are happening but I would um, you, you you brought up a great point about these plans become very static and, and often ignored um, I teach a class called adaptive planning and resilience and we we just all, all of our communities uh, all of our cities and counties and local governments and, and even state and federal agencies really need to uh, adopt um Adaptive planning methods to be more, to to have more feedback loops and to constantly be uh, assessing how is this playing out and how does the plan need to be revised. And, you know, this idea that you're going to come up, I mean, for a long time out in the West, there were these 50-year state water plans. Well, that's nutty. I mean, how could you possibly predict the, the you know future you know, climate change and drought conditions 50 years in the future, the population growth? I mean, the whole thing was, you know, but this static planning, um, and, and there's been a move. I mean, I think people recognize that the static planning approach is no longer working, but um, the actual use of adaptive planning methods is. Um, not as as uh, extensive as it should be. And in, in the class I teach, we talk about how resilience justice is a key component of that. So we, we bring in all the things we're talking about today. Um, and the third thing, I, I guess, I would ju- I've just been kind of um, I, I I it's more of a question I puzzle about because I don't know the answer. Um, so here in Louisville, I'm I we have metropolitan government, so city and county government is the same, and we do have suburban uh, you know we do we do have suburban. Counties that are, 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 you know, that aren't part of the Louisville Metro uh, decision-making process. Um, but, you know, I think about, you know, when we're talking about things like, uh, you know, the, the uh, transient nature of, of, uh, pe- of people in, the, in, in displacement and so forth, um, I think about, um, you know, for example, the, for the Anacostia and, and people moving to Prince George's County, as, as Dr. Henderson said, that's absolutely right. And then um, the other example is in Los Angeles. Um, you know, I, I asked when I was out there, where where is everybody moving? And the and uh, the answer I got was Lancaster and Palmdale. Okay, so w- what's happening is people are moving far out to the uh, most affordable housing that they can find, and still, af- you know, with two hours commute each way, get to their jobs. Um, and uh, and what's what's happening is is trans. I mean, what, what what's going on now is what's going on in Los Angeles, and what's happening in Lancaster and Palmdale are affecting each other. And we you know, we do not do a very good job of this whole sort of regional equity and and regional effects. Uh, that's that's probably one of the poorest things that we do.
1: Yeah, I would just echo that with the work of uh, no. Professor Manuel Pastor, uh, who talks about these. Uh, He says the unit of analysis now is no longer just the neighborhood, it's the metropolis. And we are suffering in some places, as uh, Professor Arnold was suggesting, uh, from what I call the tyranny of boundary. uh, Where, for example, there's an absolute line of demarcation between um, East Jefferson Avenue in Detroit and um, the first suburb that you greet there. As soon as you cross the street, the whole world changes on you. Baltimore uh, suburbs won't do anything to support the city. They really won't do anything. They don't, they're not part of the coalition. And so uh, we've had lawsuits around that. We had that federal uh, district lawsuit, very famous case of uh, Carmen uh, Thompson et al. Versus the city, uh, the mayor the city council and HUD. And the issue was that the city uh, under some pressure tore down these high rise old uh public housing projects that were built in the 1940s and 50s and replaced them with sort of garden style so-called market rate housing. Uh, but um, it displaced a large number of folks from those units by, uh, while reconcentrating them in certain neighborhoods in violation of the Fair Housing Act of 68. So uh, we said, uh, the, the, the judge said, this is not the city's fault. I mean, this, the city cannot manipulate the metropolitan real estate market. Okay, They can't, no matter what they do. And so the the, the suburban areas and HUD have to take on some responsibilities, which they're not doing. Okay. And places like Louisville and Miami-Dade and Nashville, Davidson County, all these consolidated, Marion, Indianapolis County, they have this new consolidated government. And that's helping in the sense that it's bringing what used to be two separate governments into one sort of fiscal unit and one management unit. But in places where that is not taking place, the suburbs would become uh, the challenge Uh, because in Washington, DC, you know, you've got six and a half million people in the metro area. Uh, Fairfax and Montgomery County are the two largest uh, jurisdictions there with over a million people each and the district is sandwiched in between, you know. And so if the district goes to Prince George's County or Montgomery County, let's say do a deal together around this, forget it, (laughs) it's not gonna happen. And yet a lot of what has been happening there is regional in the sense that the spillover effects from DC as we just pointed out, uh, the externalities that Professor Mahoney referred to are occurring between cities and counties and they don't have a process for collecting them. The only thing that I would just sort of point to that uh, might give us an instrument to start with are these regional councils of government, COGS, uh, where you have regional planning organizations that are supposed to represent the core cities in the area, the counties in the area, etc. And they actually do some planning together. Uh, Some are stronger than others. Atlanta has a very strong one, for example. And so they've been able to actually incorporate environmental justice in their regional plan. And they're not only doing it in planning, they're doing it in leadership development. So they have a, uh, a metro leadership development program that includes the cities and the and uh, the suburban counties. And they've now put environmental justice on that agenda for those leaders to focus on. So uh, what this says is that environmental justice has something to do with power and advocacy, as well as territory money and all of those kinds of things. So uh, I'm glad you raised that Tony, because uh, you know the scope is a little different than we've been talking
2: about historically. Professor Mahoney, um, regional equity tyranny t- of the boundary. Uh, what are your thoughts here?
4: I think it's very attractive in concept. My main question is how do we measure success? Because this is something that can be in effect avails, many, maybe putting too strongly, but, but it's such a grand, these are such sometimes grand plans that no one expects there to be any measurable success for a while, and then things roll along. I think, I think we have seen some successes. Atlanta's a, a great idea, but I'm very interested in, in identifying some things that we might expect to see or that we could reasonably see in the next, say, one to three years. Uh, thinking about the dead zones of Baltimore and other cities that we've been discussing, I think it would be achievable to have a reduction of those by thirty to fifty percent in the next one to two three years, I, I think we could do this. If We gave incentives to people if to come. Uh, we might even have a kind of uh, uh, give um, give those who are 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 willing to invest uh, significant financial um, benefits and then uh, ownership. and And I think we could see just a huge difference. It would be. Kind of like the settling of the frontier, where, where the federal government at various times during the history of the United States would uh, sell off or even give property to people on the um, on the understanding that they would actually um, be willing to go and and do something with it. And I think we could do this. And that's uh, and 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 I I'd like so I guess I'd like us to dream to think big in the sense that we could actually have something fairly soon that could be pointed to as, yes, we have really made a difference.
2: The immediacy is, is very important uh, for these um, for these issues. I would like to um, sort of uh, piggyback off of that and uh, use my power as moderator to engage in a thought experiment. Um, each of you uh, has just been uh, elected or, or um, appointed as the chief administrator of mid-sized city USA. And um, you, you have several of these dead zones to work with. What are the top, uh, what, are, what is number one and maybe number two and number three on on your, um, on your list of getting things done and, and promoting either development or, or open space and, and doing it correctly? Um, and we can go in reverse order because uh, we've had the same order. So Professor Mahoney, uh, I'm interested in your thoughts.
4: Uh, The first thing I think that I would do is to identify who owns property in these areas and who is living and working in these areas and get their comments. For the owners, uh, the owners who who do not seem to be um, interested in uh, improving things quickly, I would try very hard to get new owners, uh, whether uh, some kind of, ideally there would be sufficient money that the city has for purchasing uh, property uh, eminent domain is not out of the question though it is never my first uh never my 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 first uh, desire in addition of uh, forming working partnerships with other private entities who have a vision of there being positive um, positive change uh, so if you one can identify some existing business owners for example who are have uh, who are part of the neighborhood and um, and try to uh, convince them that uh, they might uh, be willing to, to invest more. But I do like very much this idea of governments being willing to provide property to those who are going to make good use of it. I think that that's something that that, that governments can do and, um, and and they can keep it in public hands maybe with, and, and have long-term leases or they can transfer it to fee simple ownership I think these are all things worth looking at very carefully, but that the don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. Uh, it's, it's easy to, to figure that one is going to put together some grand, wonderful, comprehensive plan. And sometimes, so, sometimes one is going to do that and sometimes it is worth waiting. But I think more often it, it's good to build on what one has. You know, we keep hearing about um, on this panel all day today, this symposium, there's so much good going on in our cities. And building on the good quickly, I think, will often yield incredible benefits.
2: Uh, Chief Administrator Arnold, uh, what would what, what are your top three uh, <laughs> strategies?
3: Oh goodness! Uh, okay, so. Uh, <laughs> uh, in, uh, so I, I I also I'm gonna admit um, I was um, a the uh, chairman of the planning commission for the city of Anaheim when I uh, was teaching in Southern California and when I practiced law in Texas I was a city attorney and so um, you know um, this is uh, exciting uh, to to be given this uh, role and authority and it also gives me a headache at the same time uh, so but no I uh, so let me. Um, I think um, I mean I, I agree um, that um, you know we we want to um, make change um, and that, that, that it is going to have to be uh, a collaborative. I, I agree with uh, things that the, uh, uh, Professor Mahoney said about that because you know just uh, you know sort of uh, top-down edicts aren't going to uh, produce the results. Uh, and I also agree with the idea that we need to get resources. Um, into i mean basically property and financial resources and other you know human resources and ideas and so forth uh it, you know harnessed uh here um i guess i would think um uh, of course about uh you know so, uh, creating a Um, a a a co-governance structure. Uh, So obviously if I'm promoting co-governance, that's going to be one of my goals is to really engage the community, the neighborhoods uh, that are affected uh, in shared governance here. Uh, So I think creating those structures is important. Um, I think another thing is um, I would really um, explore uh, creating a neighborhood land trust um, and so instead of the property being uh, solely in the government's hands or solely in sort of incentivizing private development that um, can quickly uh, and maybe inadvertently, I mean, inadvertently turn into uh, displacement, you know, gentrification, displacement, uh, I think it's really, um, you know, we we know that, um, you know, neighborhood land trusts can be useful uh, tools, uh, and we we've seen that. Uh, you know, we've seen examples of that uh, around uh, the country, and you know, a lot of the the uh, research on gentrification is is you know still emerging. But we you know, um. And the other thing, I, I guess, I would I, I want I would I, I want to create an, a sense of urgency, and yet I don't want to create um, uh. Unreasonable expectations uh, for measurable results in quick uh, with quick outcomes. And, and this is a this is a basically a political problem that I probably I might get fired over because mayors and city council members need measurable outcomes. In really short time frames, because that's that's what they tell you know the voters that hey I we did this and that and I think you know, what I see in environmental justice in green and blue infrastructure in resilience justice all of these kinds of things is that very often that's a major barrier to actual achievement of equity or justice because what happens is you get something that. It you know you you know, it's, it's certain to be achievable. So you know you come in and you just impose some park on a neighborhood that is not really what people are wanting. Or you um, you know I we see um, vacant and abandoned properties in our uh, low income African American and Latino neighborhoods here in Louisville. And what the mayor wants is sales of the he want he wants those properties put into hands of people who can do something with them but what's happening is is they're all getting in the hands of well-off white developers who don't live in the neighborhood um, who uh, you know, are really looking at, at this as a you know way to 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 you know turn this around into some sort of I mean, it's a gentrification project, really, is what's going on. But, you know, he can report that there's X number of uh, vacant, abandoned properties that are now, you know, have been transferred and put in out of the government's hand and into the hands of developers and being put to use. And so I, I worry a little bit about. Uh, the short term. But on the other hand, um, I mean, I think neighborhoods, uh, people who live in neighborhoods get frustrated with vague promises of sometime down the road, we'll just we'll have this plan that's going to be amazing. And we'll do all this thing. And it never happens. So I mean, I do feel that the sense of urgency is important. But I just worry a little bit about um, metrics that are uh, you know, are, are not really subs- You know, some are, subs- are not substantively what we're trying to achieve. They're not really equitable metrics. They're just metrics.
2: And we have a question in the chat, which we'll get to uh, in a minute about those metrics. Um, Doctor Mayor, uh, Administrative Chief, uh, uh, Doctor Henderson, what would you do?
1: <laughs> well, currently I'm a fellow of the International City Management Association, so I have a pretty good idea what those folks are going through. Uh, the first thing I would ask is what authority I have, uh, because uh, you know the rest of it will mean nothing if I don't know what the scope and scale of my authority is, including some discretion. Uh, uh, I would follow my two colleagues uh, in in a couple of senses. One is I want to take I want to hear the community first, the communities that we're focused on, uh, and the modes in which they give us their narratives, their stories, their needs. Uh, so we have some sense of what they're actually saying is most important to them. I mean, that's uh, one first step to empowerment is to hear them out, uh, and secondly, to compare that to the inventory that's been suggested of what resources we now have inside the boundaries that we talked about and outside the boundaries we talked about. What what do we what, what do we actually have in place? One of the things that we discovered in uh, Baltimore, for example, is that. You know, we were leaving out the faith community, and they have a lot of assets. They have a lot of assets. Uh, Now, I I was raised in the Catholic Church, uh, you know, being a New Orleanian. I don't know whether that's R-A-I-S-E-D or R-A-Z-E-D, but uh, these folks have a lot of resources. In East Baltimore, we have a lot of women, uh, female-headed households, who were forced off of public assistance as a result of welfare reform. And so we approached the school systems of Notre Dame in Baltimore who have a convent right in the middle of the community. And they were not only uh, willing to help us, they were eager to help us. And what they did was they they got some money and totally renovated their convent to create a training center uh, the work with these women uh, to get them into the workforce. And they certified their work in about five different areas. They helped them get placed. Once they got placed though, it was on the women to kind of come back and say, how do I train the next generation of my own peers? You know? But the thing that's important about this is that uh, the resource was there all the time. And we, we simply didn't overlook. You know, so it was the city administration that, uh, that finally certified this and me tell you a funny story real fast. Uh, I grew up with nuns and I always thought of them uh, in my my elementary school days as being tough. And, you know, many of them were Irish nuns, they loved the children, but they were a good doctrinaire. I got kicked out of Catholic school because I answered one of the questions Sister Mary Vidalis asked me the wrong way. She wanted to know from each of us, one thing we loved about Jesus, and by the time they got to me all the good answers had been taken. So the only thing I can say is I liked him because he never went to church. (laughs) and that that, that apparently was the wrong answer but uh but i say this because the interesting thing here that i focused on was that not only were these women transformed by the way this caroline center is still going it's still going after 26 years it's still operating and it's still growing on itself and metamorphosizing on itself the examples that our two professors uh have shared with us uh, are distinguished by the fact that once you get them going, they will do a certain amount of adaptation in the name of Jesus, right? Uh, so you won't have to come back and reinvent that wheel, you know. But what was interesting to me about these nuns, they were all white except for one, kind of middle aged, and they were nuns, you know. And these ladies they were working with in East Baltimore were tough. I mean, they were, you know, they've been through tough experiences, tough lives. And, and to get these two types of women together was really interesting to watch because, uh, When it first started, you know, the nun would call over one of these women and say, you know, uh, Julia, the Lord really loves you. We're praying so hard for you and so on and so forth. And the lady would look at her like she was an extraterrestrial, you know. But after about five or six years of working with these uh, ladies, the nuns had changed their orientation, right? So I went up to see one of them. I was on the board of the organization. I went up to see one of the the nuns. And she said, excuse me, just a minute. I got to talk to the lady, Girlfriend! girl, bring your ass over here so <laughs> I can The nuns and totally reoriented themselves, you know. And this is what happens when you have a, an authentic, collaborative, as as Tony has been pointing out, co-governing, co-productive sort of situation. Both parties change, or all parties change, in the way they have to to make the collective work. And so that's that's a success story. I really. So I'm looking as a city administrator for those success stories, for those things that seem to continue to move along in spite of all the opposition to them, uh, those things that move along that adaptive planning uh, route that Tony is pointing out and, and start with them uh, and then build outwards to the more challenging sort of zones of opportunity. Uh, so that, that's where I would go. And then the other part is to spend some time with the city council and the mayor trying to build a consensus around this. That's a hard thing for an administrator to do is to get your elected officials on the same page. you know, uh, who come from sort of different maybe districts or different orientations, and they don't agree. And the only reason we got this through as an ordinance is that we had a dominant two or three members of the city council who knew what to do. Uh, but that didn't mean that all of them supported it, right? And uh, uh, Ms. Uh, Professor Mahoney, one of my uh, colleagues at Virginia State is uh, Wesley Bellamy. The former vice mayor of charlottesville and oh, uh fantastic and, uh, yes. yeah he's he, i'm his boss actually you know oh gosh and uh that's yeah crazy. so he's an interesting example of this because he, he made some mistakes early on that he concedes but uh he came back and said okay what do i have to do to work in this sort of coalition uh that we're trying to build here and uh so i think that's what we're talking about uh, that's what i would be trying to do as an administrator and the last thing, of course, is to keep track of the resources and the resource transformation that take place. One of the things that, uh, whether it's short-term metrics or long-term metrics that we're looking at, is not only uh, did we make the change we said we were going to make, but what resources did we have to expend to get there, and how do we account for them, and are they building on themselves? Uh, that, that would be one of the things I would assess. If I don't have immediate success in the hard terms we normally talk about, I'm not necessarily discouraged because we have to ask ourselves how long it took to get in this condition in the first place, and uh, you know these are not overnight solutions. So you know it's hard to cultivate what I would call public policy patience here, but uh, some of it is required given what we're doing.
2: You all, thank you all for those wonderful comprehensive answers. Uh, For any administrators actually listening, I I think one takeaway is that there's no substitute for on the ground uh, engagement with with the people affected and with the public. Um, We have two questions in the chat, uh, which I'm going to try and summarize. And if I don't do it effectively, I'll just read them. But, um, and and I'll just throw these out there and whoever wants to answer um, can do so. Um, The first is about these markers for success, I believe that Professor Mahoney um, outlined. Does it make sense to create these uh, markers or or, uh, metrics for success across the board or should it be more of an ad hoc uh, basis, uh, particular to each community and uh, whether the federal government should take a bigger role in setting these metrics? The other question is um, uh, how would you manage implementing uh, environmental justice project that does justice for some and not for others. So I think um, the opposite of, of intersectional uh, solution. So whoever wants to take
4: those. I think um, in terms of metrics, I think it had it ultimately is a decision made at the local state and federal governmental level. Uh, I tend to think that uh, the knowledge of time and place that we've been discussing, right? That um, in terms of harnessing, uh, the, uh, the what's um, harnessing the knowledge of, of local communities and also uh, figuring out how to build on the existing resources, um, human and other, uh, I think it li- does lead to a, a more tailored approach. Uh, I do take Professor Arnold's uh, comment about how one can, in effect, choose the wrong metric. One can choose a flashy metric because it sounds good. One can choose an easily achievable metric, right? Something that was going to happen anyway, and then declare oneself a big success. We we see that happen. We, we see that happen a lot, and that is, of course, exactly what we don't want to do. Uh, there's also something else that I think is very important listening to this panel discussion, which is to figure out some way to, to give assurances to communities, as they are asked to do a lot, that they will be um, able to enjoy the fruits of all their labor and effort. This, this issue of displacement keeps coming up again and again. And I think one 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 danger is, is seeing um, the so many people work so hard and then not be able to stay. And I think that is something that seems to cut across cut against a, you know, a real we we see this in Charlottesville a lot. Um, as Charlottesville has become uh, far less hospitable um, to, to working people and become very much a, um, a city of, 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 of great affluence. And so forth right there's the so so that's something but um how one puts that in a metric is is of course a lot tougher to do
3: and i'll just i i, I agree with all of that and i just uh will point out a, an answer i just typed up which is it's, it's really uh, it's not an either or question right i mean it's a it's a continuum and and that's the i mean we don't want your know, sort of total uh, what what uh, one of my colleagues called ad hocery, uh, right, is sort of total you know anything. But on the you know, and we do want some some accountability. But on the other hand, uh, it is uh, you know there is uh, is context specific and it's community specific, and uh, it has to be more organic uh, than uh, than top down. And so it's it's some continuum uh, somewhere along the continuum.
1: I, I would just add to to both of those just very quickly. The word metric here is, a, is is a problem because I think I would say that yes, there are some quantitative metrics that we can refer to constantly in monitoring whatever we do, but for a lot of the conditions that we're talking about, it's the qualitative metrics that I'm looking at—the changes in one's sense of uh, belonging, one's sense of participation, of change, etc. And that's what you feel, rather than something that you can measure in hard terms, but those are often, as Professor Mahoney has suggested, often not acceptable to, and I think you mentioned this, Tony, too, to folks who want to turn around things really quickly and and want hard numbers to to sort of back them up. So quantitative and qualitative uh, indicators, let's call them, rather than metrics, uh, may be a place to go. And then the other piece is uh, I've found that in certain communities, uh, like in Baltimore, the affluent feel marginalized by uh, progressive initiatives. So they have boxed themselves into these uh, uh, with the, uh, benefit associations where they say, we don't trust the city government because uh, they're not really focused on us anymore. So we're going to create our own local sort of uh, uh, protection force or we're going to do our own uh, park uh, activity and so on. So I think one of the Dimensions of resiliency. I think Tony has taught us so well today. Is that whatever metrics we use, the combination or indicators that we use, should tell us who's on the outside of this, and the next iteration or the next chapter of the life cycle of that activity should reach out and embrace them, re-engage them. You know, uh, so that we uh, we are not about alienating anybody whatsoever. This is a This is a systems issue we've been talking about all day. And so if we're alienating large numbers of people, excluding people from the system, uh, that's gonna come back to
2: bite us at some time uh, or another. Well, thank you all. I'm getting a message that we are at time. Um, So I just wanna thank uh, Professor Mahoney, (laughs) Professor Arnold and Dr. Henderson. Uh, Thank you so much. This has been such an enlightening conversation um, about uh, how cities can really go about generating development and uh, doing it equitably. Um, thank you all so much. Thank um, you all. Thank, thank you, Samantha. thank
4: you very much. Thanks right. for the discussion. Uh,
2: all right, and I
4: believe- Oh, by we- the way,
2: can I oh,
1: Can yes. I ask if we could, for, Melissa, if we could get a master list of the contact information of our colleagues here because we're, we're creating a new network here
2: <laughs> and yes. uh, we ought to remain in touch <laughs> with
1: each other if we can. Yes.
2: Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you all. Uh, we will see you at the next uh, event. Take care.
0: Thank, thank you. you. Good job, Brian. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sustainability in the City from the William and Mary Environmental Law and Policy Review. We hope you enjoyed the presentation. Please check out our other episodes, which include other author presentations, as well as the symposium panels. And please follow us on social media.